most of us, the majority of our population is overweight or has obesity. You know, our generation was raised on this stuff and it shows in our health. It's a problem. It's a really big problem. Our life expectancy is going down in America and people are living with substandard lives because of this. But there's such an effort to permeate our world with this is pleasure. This is fun. This is childhood is, you know, I had the same experience at 7-Eleven with the Slurpees, you know, and ding-dongs and ho-hos. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Feeling Full podcast. I'm Mordechai, an entrepreneur and coach who struggled with being overweight for nearly two decades. But since 2012, I've lost 130 pounds and have kept it off. Join me and my guest today to discover how it's possible and even simple to lose weight with ease without going on crazy diets and without doing intense workouts. If you're ready to give up quick fixes and fad diets and build a fulfilling relationship with your body and food, then this show is for you. Today, our guest is Laura Schmidt. Laura Schmidt, PhD, is a professor of health policy in the School of Medicine at UCFS. She holds a joint appointment in the Philip R. Lee Institute for Health Policy Studies and the Department of Anthropology, History, and Social Medicine. Laura works to understand how changing lifestyles are contributing to the global rising rate of chronic disease and working to figure out what can be done about it. We discussed the rising levels of obesity rates in the country, especially with kids, and the impact it has on their lives. Sugar is in almost everything, and I think this conversation will help shed some light onto why you may find yourself craving and desiring foods you may not really want. Thanks for joining, and let's jump right in. I'm really happy to be having this conversation with you because I am a recovering sugar addict, for one. And um, you've been, alone. yeah, and you've been, and you've been studying this stuff for quite, quite some time now. Has it been, it's been two decades? Is that right? Or yeah, I got my start actually studying alcohol. At a certain point, somebody showed up in my office, Rob Lustig, who is an endocrinologist who studies sugar and has written several books on the topic. And Rob said, "I hear from people around UCSF that you're." You know about how to regulate stuff that kills people. And <laughs> have you ever thought about sugar? And I, I said, well, no, I've, I've been doing alcohol and, you know, cannabis and, and drugs of abuse. And, and that's kind of, I'm going to stay in my, my lane on that. And then he said, well, did you know that sugar causes liver cirrhosis and liver disease, just like alcohol does? And I'm like, what? Because, you know, if you study alcohol, you're always tracking uh, levels of liver cirrhosis in the population. It's one of the best indicators. And he said, yeah, there's this thing called non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And I, I'm like, really? And, and he's like, yeah. And the more I looked into it, the more I realized it's surpassing alcoholic liver disease as one of the leading causes of liver transplantation in America. And that the sugar fructose drives fatty liver disease just in the same way through a process called de novo lipogenesis, just in the same way that alcohol does. And when I, I learned that, I started to think about sugar to children. We feed sugar to infants. It's in baby food. And we regulate alcohol. You can't even buy it until you're 21 in America. And yet we're just loading kids up on sugar. And then you look at the rates of childhood diabetes. And that it used to, my grandmother had diabetes. It was called adult onset diabetes. Right. And now, you know, our, our food supply has just been filled up with sugar products. And so 
of course, people are getting, children are getting diabetes and fatty liver. So I want to jump all into all over that and misrepresenting food to kids and parents. And that is something that we're definitely going to cover. But I just want to kind of get a little more background. So Robert- well, that's how I got in the sugar right, world. From, from the Rob, food or from Robert? Well, Rob turned me on to this whole area Hi. of, and then one of my students was transplanting livers. And I'm like, is this really true? And he's like, yeah, you know, now that we've got hep C under control, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is the main thing. And these folks are so sick. They've been through diabetes, they've been obese, and, and then their bodies shrink with the liver disease and they're in for a transplant. And then the most tragic part of it for me was that once people get the transplant, their bodies are so messed up metabolically, they ruin the new liver. So, right. you know, with at least with alcoholics, they go into recovery and, you know, they maybe they that liver is healthy. But and so it's a really tragic problem and very poorly understood because this condition didn't even have a name until 1980. And we started eating more and more sugar starting kind of 1950, but it really went up in the starting in the 70s with high fructose corn syrup just being poured into the food supply. And so these new diseases are literally tracking changes in our food environment. And it's very concerning to me. And it, it was enough of a, an issue. You know, I feel like at least with alcohol, we have basic regulatory public health infrastructure. We tax alcohol, we regulate alcohol, kids can't buy it. We have all this basic stuff, but with sugar and, and junk food, we have none of it. Like we can't even get soda taxes, just the simplest penny per ounce. We have like seven cities in the United States have a soda tax. And your, your, you city, know, is, your, your city is one in Berkeley, right? It's, is it, Berkeley, are you based in San, Berkeley? I worked on the San Francisco soda tax uh, very closely with the Board of Supervisors. And part of the reason is because I just got kind of passionate about this issue. And the, Rob and I wound up writing this very controversial paper in the journal Nature, where we said, look, here's a list of things that alcohol does to the human body, hypertension, you know, all these chronic diseases, heart disease, liver disease. Here's a list of the things that fructose and sugar does to the human body. And the, they're very similar, the lists. And then we went on to say, we regulate one, we regulate the hell out of alcohol, and we do nothing about sugar and hyperprocessed foods. And that just set off four months of, of talking to reporters, <laughs> basically. It was just like this. And that, and also a lot of harassment. So just to kind of understand, so the sugar tax, you're taxing per an ounce of soda. Yeah. What was the tax? And... And what kind of results did you actually see from, from getting that uh, implemented? Yeah, so soda taxes are a really interesting area. We can't get them passed in the United States very easily because the sugar-sweetened beverage industry is politically extremely powerful and is going to, you know, they fight taxation tooth and nail. But internationally, where the multinational companies don't live in the country, but they are imposing, they're making people obese and they're you know, ruining people's health. There, countries all around the world are taxing sugar soda at this point. So we have almost 40 countries now, starting about 2016, countries just started to wise up and say, hey, our populations are becoming sick and obese and we gotta do something about this. And Mexico is really a big turning point because they have their rates of obesity and diabetes are almost as high as ours. 
because these companies have been in the, in Mexico for decades. The research coming out of Mexico, they passed implemented their tax in 2014, and it was the first time that scientists were studying the impact of the tax. And within like the first six months, you saw like a, a statistically significant decline in in soda sales. By 12 months, it was about 10, 12 percent decline which is significant across a whole population of people. And so that evidence started to really lead to a whole movement internationally to tax soda. And so based on the results that you've seen, so I know that at UCFS, you got soda completely removed. Is yeah. that, I love to hear more about that, but actually before I jump to that, I just wanna talk about the, the tax implementation, implementations, implementation, because I was reading up on, on some of the reports on what the results were when tax was implemented for soda purchases. And I saw, I saw one report that kind of was a little baffling about Philadelphia, where they said that the, it did reduce the purchases by close to three and a half or 4%, but the surrounding areas, it went up three and a half, four 4% purchases, which kind of makes sense to me. I mean, as somebody who was addicted to soda and sugar and everything else, if I couldn't buy you know, soda in New York, I would go to New Jersey and buy soda. It makes perfect sense. I'm curious. Do you, is that, is that accurate on your end or is that, like, is that, or is that, is that the soda company and promote, you know, yeah. talking about that? Yeah. So that's a whole other rabbit hole we could go down. And I'd love to, if you, if you're up for it around scientific conflicts of interest and how the industry pays scientists to do studies that right. are always industry friendly in their findings. I think there's a mixed picture. There is a lot of, I mean, we know a lot, like none of these public health strategies, they're pretty crude tools. People kind of faddish these days to talk about precision public health, but public health is a pretty crude, our strategies are pretty crude. And we know from the history of tobacco and alcohol taxation that there are lots of unintended consequences and cross-border purchasing is one. And because in the US, the industry is so good at suppressing taxation, cities are basically the only places that have been able to actually launch taxes. And that's a very small environmental footprint. And so cross-border is going to happen. What you hope for is a whole continent is taxing or the whole country. And then it's a lot harder. to You don't get these kind of cross-border. But I've seen uh, reports coming out of Philadelphia that are on both sides, that the cross-border, it still doesn't completely do away with the impact of the tax. And the cool thing about Philly's tax is that it was really presented not so much as we're trying to get consumers to stop drinking soda and more, we want to fund pre-K universal education for kids. And so what's very cool about these taxes is that when they pass, and there's a new study out by my colleagues, Chris Madsen and, and Jim Krieger on this very topic, they actually looked at where the money goes. And, you know, say the city of San Francisco raises $40 million a year in its soda tax, and they have a citizen's board with a lot of representation from low-income communities of color. And that citizens board is saying, we need water stations in, this, in parks in this part of town. And we need chronic disease prevention and we need uh, school-based education and so forth. The, currently, because the taxes are small and they're limited to cities, a lot of the benefit is coming from what those tax dollars can buy for public health. And in all cases in the US, the money's going to good causes. It's not like getting sucked up into the general fund of the city and just going nowhere. It's going to helping people to prevent chronic disease and, and obesity. It's an interesting thing 
from a behavior science standpoint of like kind of punishing people for wanting sugar. Yeah. Like I get, I get how it works. And I think punishment can, and it kind of is a punishment for someone who wants to drink soda. And between me and you and, and many people listening know sugar is bad and like it's not necessarily a bad thing. Why should many, peri- why should many people carry the burden because other people are, you know, so that our country now pays way more in healthcare because of fatty liver and di- early diabetes and other, other problems as well. But it also feels like, is that really going to get someone to change their behavior, which I think is what, is what we want. And I think it's, I guess it's, we're, we're, I mean, I'm curious, is it, are we punishing the sugar drink companies, which the soda companies, we're not actually publishing, yeah. that's, that's the idea, I guess. We're not, it's not a the actual thing that. It's not a tax on the consumer. It's a tax on the distributor, usually, at least the ones in the Bay Area. You can set these things up in all different ways. The goal of the tax is to tax the companies in order to pay for, make them pay for some of the externalities of their products. So externalities are, I make a product that people like, but also makes people sick, like soda. And yet Medicare and Medicaid pay for all of the health harms caused by my product and I get off scot-free. And so the goal is to tax the distributors. Ideally, you could even tax the original companies by you know setting up various I won't get into it, but there are ways to do that, even through sugar subsidy stuff. But the goal is to get as far up the food chain, no pun intended, as possible, and to hold the companies accountable for the health harms that they cause and the costs of those health harms, which are vast. I mean, diabetes is one of the fastest rising healthcare expenditures in any employer's um, portfolio. And so you're really looking at very, very high costs. And these companies just currently, they can damage our health as much as they want and they don't have to pay for it. And so the taxes, uh, like the one in the UK, is designed to incentivize them to make their products healthier so that they don't have to, right? And so they're, now what happens is if you tax the distributor, sometimes they call it pass-through. It goes, they they say, hey, I don't want to pay this tax. I'm going to make you pay it, consumer. And that's when it starts to feel like a punishment on the on the consumer. It also has the, you know, some people say, yeah, the taxes are regressive, but also diabetes is regressive. You know, the the lower income people wind up getting it more because they ha- don't have a- access to healthy food. And so, you know, there's an argument for making it less attractive to buy this stuff. But again, the goal is not to punish the consumer. And the other thing you have to think about is. We're already being punished. These companies have been punishing us for decades. I mean, you walk down any, the cereal aisle, any grocery store, and it looks like, oh, I've got all these choices. I can have, you know, the cereal with the bunny cartoon on it or the cereal with the rhino on it. And, oh, it's so great. And I could have blue cereal or green cereal and with chocolate. And then, you know, there's this illusion that we have tremendous choice. But you turn the package around and you look at what's in every one of those boxes and it's the same crap. It's refined sugar, refined, you know, corn, wheat, and then a bunch of colors and flavors and that are chemical additives that we're just, and so we don't have choice and we are being punished. And at least efforts to clean up the food environment are are trying to reverse some of that punishment. Yeah, I, I'm with that. I was... I, one of my favorite cereals growing up with the Honey Nut Cheerios. And you know what? On the front of the, on the, front of the box, it says, you know, there's a little bee with the honey and it looked amazing, right? And then it says, 
um, something about lowering your cholesterol. <laughs> Remember, <laughs> it, is, it is, you know, known to lower so some crazy thing about oh, lowering yeah. your cholesterol. It's crazy because as a five-year-old kid or an eight-year-old, you don't, you, you know, you're like, honey, not sure. That's, that's what I want. And even on the hunt, even though it's sweet, I'm still putting, you know, domino sugar on top of that to make it even sweeter as a kid. And it's just, there's no, there wasn't any check and balances. And it's, I want to get more into that. But before we do, I just want to understand a little bit more. Is there no restrictions with companies that they, when, when a company decides to make a sweet drink and put and use some sort of sweetener, they, is there, are, are there, I know, I know there's some requirements they have to pass, obviously, but is, is it pretty much, there's no limit to how much sugar or addictive substances they can put into the actual product? Yeah, I, as long as they declare it on the, on, within the FDA labeling restrictions and up until very recently, we didn't even, the FDA didn't even require, and the USDA didn't require them to put how many added sugars were in the product. So you could just say all sugars. And that's really different, right? So milk has sugar in it. I'm not so worried about kids drinking milk. If you're adding sugar to stuff, that's where we get into jacking up the sugar content and causing addiction and chronic disease and so forth. And so they live within certain restrictions. And But there's a tremendous amount, what you described is called health washing. And there's a tremendous amount of that going on right now because consumers have been really wising up to this. And particularly the companies are right now, they want to hook young people. They want get to get in as young as possible because that's how they can build brand loyalty. They want you to, as a little kid, see the little bumblebee and be thinking about, oh, this is my brand. You know, I don't eat Captain Crunch. I eat Honey Nut Cheerios. That's my brand. And then for life, you're stuck on that shit, you know, and they're, that's their kind of MO. And right now, it turns out they're really doubling down on millennials and young adults. And these are people who are a little bit more savvy and they're worried about the environment and sustainability. And the companies are freaked out because these young people actually do look at the label on the back and say, I don't like 25 ingredients here with chemical names I could never understand. I want three ingredients. And so they're trying to clean up their act. And you get these perverse products like organic Gatorade. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> it's, it's out there. And you get um, a Coke Life is one of my favorites. It's oh, the Coke, Coke can in green. And then it's a combination. The sugar in it is natural cane sugar and natural stevia. Like, oh my gosh, you know, and it's environmentally great. And, you know, it's just the same old crap. Does Coke uh, actually think that people are going to buy that? Because it's a green, it's a green. And, but, <laughs> they but, wouldn't sell it if they don't buy it. But, but millennials are smarter, you know, just because the can is green. I mean, when I, I remember when I was a kid, I, 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 they had um, Heinz, I think, made green ketchup. And I remember... Oh, wow. Do you, do you remember that? I don't know. It was, it was out there. It was out there for a while. I remember tasting it. We, we got this ketchup and I remember tasting it. I didn't even actually taste the same because my brain just didn't register. It's the same, literally the same ingredients, just different, different, different color food, different color food coloring. And my brain just didn't register it as ketchup. I couldn't actually eat it, but they tried this, a similar <laughs> thing. It's like the green Coke. It feels very, very similar. But I feel like people are, if someone's buying Coke, I don't think they want to I guess, do people know that, Co does everyone know that Coke is bad or is that not really, am I taking that for granted because this is the thing that we're um, talking about? Yeah, I think the, the target audience for these bizarre colors and flavored products is children. And children, 
We did a study because at UCSF, we have what's called the Food Industry Documents Library. And it's, it's a bunch of internal documents from food corporations. Their emails, their reports, their studies that food corporations have conducted. Michael Moss's new book uses some of the documents. And it really p- kind of lifts the veil. And we're, we're trying to study the food industry as a vector of disease, understand what is driving these perverse products and, and so forth. And so we got really interested in Kool-Aid and children's beverages because we learned from our documents library that Philip Morris, the big tobacco giant, had bought up Kool-Aid. And actually, they bought Kraft and General Foods and merged them to make the largest food corporation in America. So this is in 1985 to 7. So this is a tobacco company that owns the largest food corporation in the world. And so then we're like, oh boy, tobacco executives, we know what they're about. <laughs> they're about putting, jacking up the nicotine in the cigarette to addict more people, targeting kids with Joe Camel. Like, oh my God, you know, don't let tobacco executives in front of food. But sure enough, you know, as we study in the archive, the tobacco executives are installed in Kraft General Foods and they start doing the same tobacco strategy for children's beverages. And the goal is what they call line extensions, where they take like one product, Kool-Aid, and then they all they do is they just vary it for different segments of the population. And so you literally have quotes from these, to these executives saying, well, we did focus groups and we learned that little white boys like blue. So we're going to make blue Dini. You know, it's really capitalizing on the children, child's desire for novelty and play and variety. And so, you know, things like swizzle sticks, you put sugar in a tube and then the kid makes their own so sugar sweetened beverage or, and, you know, black kids, you know, like more sweetener in their Kool-Aid. It literally, black kids like to make their own. They like to add their own extra sugar. Like these are quotes from the archives. And so it's a very deliberate strategy to take advantage of children. And I think that's where the colors and flavors, the millennials may be a little wiser and know to turn around the package. But if you're, you know, standing in the grocery line with your toddler and they're screaming, I want blue Kool-Aid, you know, it's hard to say no. And they saw the commercial on TV, right? So like the Kool-Aid man (laughs) popping and breaking through walls. And then all of a sudden they're at the store. Of course they want the Kool-Aid. It makes perfect sense. It's a whole, it's the game works perfectly. Actually, when we published this paper in British Medical Journal, Andrew Jacobs at the New York Times did a whole thing on the paper. And they're, it's really fun if, for people who want to look it up because they got all these old ads from the tobacco-owned beverage co- you know, lines. It wasn't wow. just Kool-Aid. It was Capri Sun was owned by Philip Morris. Hawaiian Punch was the first Hawaiian one that R.J. Reynolds bought up. And when they bought it up in 67, it was Hawaiian Pacific. It was an adult cocktail mixer. That's what Hawaiian Punch originally was for. It was for the wife in the 50s and 60s who makes the, adds the vodka to the Hawaiian punch and makes a cocktail. And when, as soon as RJ Reynolds got it, it became a children's beverage and it had 25 different colors and flavors in like a year. And so anyway, the New York Times website has this really, they show old videos of the Kool-Aid man breaking through walls and I'm gonna, I'm gonna, yeah, I'm gonna have to. Sh- I'll share that link in the notes. I'll, I'll get it from. I'll get it from you. We'll, um, we'll, we'll post that for people who want to dig in a little bit more. But I actually have seen it, and I, I was 
blown away by how crazy, you know, it's like, it's like Kool-Aid's like a billion dollar, almost a billion dollar company. And like, they're having this, you know, it's a very, it's a low ticket product. So the bill, almost a billion dollar company is significant amount of Kool-Aid being sold. And the question is with the marketing that they're doing to, to kids and selling this stuff to kids, what's been working on the consumer side? How do people actually take precautions, you know, because it seems like it's a beast that's being fed that's way bigger than any single person trying to sure stay is. away. I know that like in my life, I'm, you know, I, I used to love tangy taffies. Going to 7-Eleven after school was like, the, was a, a nat, a, an everyday thing almost. We, you know, go, go to school, stop on the way back, the carpool would stop whoever was driving 7-Eleven. <laughs> We'd all take our one or $2 out of our pockets, all Slurpees. the kids. And we're not talking like 16 ounces. We're talking like, you know, the big ones, the big golfs. Yeah. Especially on a hot summer day in Detroit, we're just, we're just, you know, drinking those Slurpees. And like, eat, and so I used to love tangy taffies because that's, you know, the thing they had in the store there. And I love them. I don't know what it was about them. And to this day, if I walk, I don't haven't eaten a tangy taffy. In, I don't even know how long, but if I walk past one tangy taffy and I see it, I still remember. I'm like, ah, right. It's like, I, I remember you. Well, that's what the food company executives want. They right. want it. They want your, and it your whole childhood to be kind of punctuated by these experiences with their junk food. And, you know, we were raised on this, so it's normalized for us. But you also have to look at the fact that it's normalized for the U.S. population at 70.3% overweight obesity. And so most of us, the majority of our population is overweight or has obesity. And so it might feel like fond memories of childhood, but, you know, our generation was raised on this stuff and it shows in our health. I don't want to be a total Debbie Downer about this, but it, it's a problem. It's a really big problem. Our life expectancy is going down in America and people are living with substandard lives because of this. But there's such an effort to permeate our world with this is pleasure. This is fun. This is childhood is, you know, I had the same experience at 7-Eleven with the Slurpees, you know, and ding-dongs and ho-hos. And I mean, on one level, you can look at it and you can say, oh, well, that, that was a fond childhood memory. Maybe it found that childhood memory, but I, I mean, I don't, I, I'm curious what your relationship to sugar is now, but after, you know, losing all the weight that I lost, I still struggle with these cravings. So it's like, yeah, a fond childhood memory that I used to get tangy taffies and Slurpees, and now 35 and still paying for it in a sense, because yeah. now I still have those cravings. I still have to, you know, pass those foods in the store and think, you know, and, and, and use willpower to not, you know, it's not a lot of willpower, obviously, because it's been, I've created so much distance, but anybody who's really enjoyed a product like a food product like that is still on some level has some sort of relationship with it. I'm curious about you. So have you, so you ding-dongs and Slurpees and ho-hos. I've never had those, never had ho-hos. But um, I'm sure it's probably the same packaging as the as Twinkies, you know, it's, or same ingredients as Twinkies, you know. And I have had plenty. What's so? What, what was your relationship with the sugar growing up, and 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 how did you um how do you deal with it? Yeah, so I grew up on the standard American diet of junk and and packaged processed foods, hamburger helper for dinner, the usual crap. Growing up in California, and very heavy meat diet because my family came from Eastern Europe. And for some reason, which I, I still don't quite understand, the day I left my family home for college, I just stopped eating meat. 
and I have not eaten meat for over, well over 40 years. And I also um, got first thing in college because I was sort of, I, I read uh, Lappy's book, Diet for a Small Planet. And I think that was part of it. This was late 70s. And I kind of became a sort of, you know, how you are in college, you get become kind of a zealot about stuff and, and you're trying to be different from what you grew up with. And I latched on to Whole Foods as sort of a, and so when I was at Berkeley in the student co-ops, I launched a vegetarian food program. And for whatever reason, I moved away from junk at a pretty early age. And so I haven't, I don't really eat, I just don't really buy packaged processed foods at all. And I have sugar in, in my kitchen. And when we cook, I might throw some sugar in there to make bread or whatever. I'm not crazy about it, but I probably have under a teaspoon of added sugar a day. The dietary recommendations are not draconian, and I'm not recommending that for everyone, but women should be trying to stay under six teaspoons a day and men under nine. But when your system is is kind of hooked and, and you're craving it all the time, I think that can be a different situation. And you might not be full on addicted to junk food. That is a problem for sure, but, you, but there's sort of like managing on a day-to-day basis. And and what we know from addiction research is that some people really need to just, like with alcohol, never go near it right. again. When they go into recovery, they change their whole social network. Instead of drinking buddies, they have AA buddies. And that is not necessary for everybody. There are plenty of people who can become alcoholic, recover, and become controlled. It's a segment of the population that has to completely stay away from it. And I imagine there's something similar going on with processed food. There's this chunk of the population that is stuck kind of managing it. And so if, the cra- if you find that a little sugar triggers cravings, then probably a little sugar is not a great idea for you. If you find that you can manage six teaspoons, nine teaspoons a right. day and, and not just become kind of have your whole mind hijacked and just constantly thinking about it, then that's good too. Yeah. Different strokes for different folks. Yeah, I'm definitely one to if I have a little bit of sugar, it, it's it's gonna be it's gonna need a lot of willpower to not have a lot of sugar. Yeah. So I completely abstain from it. But yeah, I guess everyone everyone's I know plenty of people who can have a little sugar and it works just well for them. Yeah. So more power to them. And I, I want to dive in a little bit to diabetes. So the diabetes rates are 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 becoming higher with children. Can you talk to that a bit? What's what are the rates with children and what's and what's being done about it? So actually, we're very happy to report that overall rates of diabetes are starting are, are plateauing and going down. It varies across populations, but we're hoping so actually sugar sugar consumption, soda consumption is going down in the US population. And as we talked about at the very outset, it's not because we're regulating it because we aren't by and large, aside from a few. It's because consumers are wising up and people are becoming more aware and trying to push back against norms are changing. And that is a great thing. The problem is that diabetes rates are really uneven across the population. And so children of color in particular just have massively high rates of type 2 diabetes. And that's partly driven by poor access to healthy food. And that is a big, big issue. And 
There may be other factors at play, but the thing that you can really change is the food environment for those kids. So for Black and Latino kids, we're looking at quadruple rates compared to kids two to four times compared to white kids. And so the challenge here is that type 2 diabetes, once you get it, it's really hard to reverse. So you're looking at whole populations of children that are growing up at this with this tremendous health disadvantage. They're getting it as kids, and then they're basically going to be struggling with it for the rest of their lives. And, you know, the complications of diabetes over the life course are, are really kidney disease. People wind up on dialysis. It's a really unpleasant thing to manage and very, very costly. People, heart disease, blindness, amputation. I mean, it really, it's a really devastating disease and we could be preventing it. A lot of it comes down to our inability to push back against the food industry very effectively in America. We were talking about children and marketing to kids and the public health community has been pushing on that issue for decades and decades and decades and making basically no progress. And what happens is the industry says, oh, well, we can regulate ourselves in terms of children's advertising. And we all sign a pledge that we're Coca-Cola and all these big companies say, sign up, literally sign a pledge saying, we're not going to market to children under 12. So then what is the Coca-Cola bear about? Like, is that marketing to 15-year-olds? I don't think so. What are the cartoon characters on? It's just, their goal is to stall. And I don't even think a lot of these companies think they can prevent regulation. They're just stalling for as long as they possibly can so they can continue to profit and do what they want. And the challenge is, you know, campaign finance reform. You know, I've, I've testified in front of whole legislatures where I'm looking at representatives for low-income populations and Latino representatives and saying, look at, here are the numbers on type 2 diabetes in, in the Latino population. And they're literally looking at their feet. It's so shameful. And they've been bought out by the beverage industry, you know, taking camping donations. And so they're not going to do anything. It's a real big problem. And to that point, I mean, Coca-Cola, I believe, is an $80 billion company today or something, <laughs> something like that. So it's like with that kind of money and that kind of right. power, think, I mean, of course, they, can pretty, they can buy whatever they want to buy, change policy. Whatever. They, they're, they're in the driver's seat and it's been going on for decades. I mean, what you're saying to try to combat this in your universe, the people that you're talking to and the, and the policymakers and the, and, the, and the experts what would work in, in people's minds? What are, oh, what, we what, totally know what would work. <laughs> all right. So, 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 so give it to me, give it to me because straight. We, what, did it, what? We, we did it with tobacco. And, you know, I remember when I was like a, a little master's degree student in public health. And I remember that we, the public health community was at war with the car industry over airbags. And people were like, you know, you'd look at the, at the traffic mortality rates and, you know, people dying in car crashes. And Ford would be saying, oh, gosh, no, we could never put airbags in cars. That would be totally too expensive and impossible. And it's like what it took to get freaking airbags in cars. They save massive quantities of human life every year. And it's the same old game here. 
And we know from tobacco and we know from alcohol exactly what's needed. And it's not even like making the companies go away. It's simple, basic public health regulations. And it's, and if you look at the rates of tobacco, like lung cancer mortality in, in America, about 10 years after they started regulating cigarettes, they just plummet. And now it's like very low rates. And that's because we regulated it. And so it means taxing it. It means regulating marketing, especially to children. It means getting employers to get the crap out of their workplaces and clean. And it means very simple strategies to rejigger the food environment so that it is less toxic to human beings. And we know it's, it's not one policy. It's a bundle of policies that work together and they work for everything else that's health harming that people consume. And we, we already know taxation works for soda and junk food. And also warning labels are really important. A lot of countries around the world are putting these little warning labels on the front of cereal boxes and junk food that are like traffic signals that tell parents. Oh, wow. Chile, Chile has been a big innovator in this area and the parents don't buy it. It's just great. And so it's small changes that add up to big changes in the food environment. And they're all very familiar strategies. It's not like this is some crazy thing out of left field. These are very basic public health protections. And it's been, so you're saying it's been done with alcohol, it's been done with cigarettes, and you're saying it's a matter of time before it starts to come together. Because I mean, from my end, I'm, 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 I mean, you're on the, you're on the, you're on the front line. So you, you know, this stuff, what's happening, but it feels like it's this behemoth that we're fighting and that it feels almost like you're playing one of those arcade games and you're the little, <laughs> the little person playing this monster, you know, Thanks for that. Cause I'll remember that next time I'm testifying in front of, yeah, no, I mean, it, it is a little bit of a, a David and Goliath. I think when you hit a tipping point where you know, over 70% of the, of the population is overweight or has obesity. You can't just say, oh, well, Americans lost their willpower. When you look at the fact that people rates in China and in Brazil of obesity are massively skyrocketing, they're starting to go up in India and Africa, where these companies are getting their hooks in. You can't human race just lost its willpower. If you guys could just go on a diet and get some exercise, you'd be better off. You have to say there's something wrong with the environment and the environment needs to be changed. And here's a, a really kind of scary reality. Most of our big diet companies, Jenny Craig, Weight Watchers, Slim Fast, guess who owns them? Don't tell me the fat. Don't tell me cocoa. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I would never do that to you. Heinz owns Weight Watchers. Unilever owns Slim Fast. Nestle owns Jenny Craig. And what's always oh, so in- my gosh. Yeah. yeah. I had I had no idea of that yeah. information. So, that is crazy. So like, Nestle makes hot pockets and they also make Jenny Craig diet food. <laughs> do not many people know that. Not many people know that. So this is where I go back to, you know, we have to study this industry like a, a just like any disease vector. Like if we want to stop malaria. So what do we do? We go to the puddles where the mosquitoes breed and we figure out how close they are to children in parts of the developing world 
And then we go put mosquito nets on those children. So we protect the kids from the vector. And that is exactly what we have to be doing with the food industry. These are inconvenient facts. We need to make this public because that's part of how it's a disease vector. If you start people on Jenny Craig, what's going to happen to them? All right. I right? Mean, a big chunk of them are going to, you know, binge as soon as they stop the Jenny Craig diet food from coming to their front door. Wow. And then you're going to get into this boom and bust thing. Their metabolism is all messed up and they're craving junk food. Wow. I'm still in shock that these, that these diet companies are owned by <laughs> these food companies. That's just insane. I want people listening to have a better understanding of what they can do to take preventative measures to have more control. Because obviously what we're painting is a very doomsday type of scenario. It's like you have no control. The diet companies are controlling you. The well, food companies are controlling you. The marketing companies are controlling right. you. We, what we, can people control? One really positive development people don't need to worry about 61 names of sugar anymore because the public health community put pressure on the federal government to get a, a, a label with added sugar on the back of our packages. And most companies are doing it. And that means that you can now, courtesy of, you would not believe the massive mobilization in the public health community to make this happen. Pressure, pressure, pressure and pushing against the companies. But now anybody can turn that package around and look and see added sugar. It's got, you know, nine grams, it's got 12 grams. And think about, okay, do I really want that much sugar, added sugar? It's changes like that that really empower people to take a little more control over their diet. But I found, and maybe it's because I'm lucky enough to live in California where we have wonderful natural you know, we're like the breadbasket of America. But I found that it's not that hard to just steer your way around packaged foods. If it's in a, you know, I mean, yeah, canned tomatoes for sure. I'll buy that if it's just tomatoes, right? But I'm able to live a really happy life. And I like, I have a great diet and I enjoy eating without buying a bunch of stuff in packages. I don't need to look at the nutrition label too often because I just, steer away from um, packaged and processed food. So there's this, this team in Brazil that came up with a way to actually define, like what is hyper-processed food? And without going into the details, you have to, I almost, I've started to wonder if it's really food at all. It's more like food-like substances or something right. like that. Because if you look at a soda or you look at junky cereal, what you're really looking at is they took what used to be food, wheat, corn, sugar, and then what they did was they refined it all. So they stripped all the nutrients out of it and they turned it into these components that then get put back together in industrial plant and then colors and flavors are typically added to make it more palatable and fats. And that's processed food. It's not really the same as food because it's been through this industrial production process and it's been pulled apart and put back together. And so that's what we need to stay away from. Bread made at your local bakery is processed, but it's not right. the same as Wonder Bread. I think the struggle comes in when, you know, when, it, when the food-like products, as you were saying, it does the same thing, fills your belly, you're still alive, and it tastes delicious, <laughs> right? It's very hard yeah. to tell somebody who, who's saying, like, I can buy 
a box of cereal for two dollars and a and a right. bottle of milk for three, and it can feed you know three or four, three people for four people for breakfast. It's a tough argument to make. I I'm with you. Like I I think it takes and it takes insane amount of intention and priority to live the way you know we're living with yes. with. I think it's a luxury to be able to say I I pretty much only eat produce and fish and whatever you know. It's like yeah. that's the way I live my life. But most people, I don't think are, are making it that kind of. A priority or intention it takes a lot it needs to be like a number one thing or don't that you have do the resources to do it. or exactly or don't have to exactly or don't, and many people I'm don't so i think i think you know i think we're in a fortunate situation which is i think many people will argue that affordability is the number one concern and that the food is you know it's just not it's just not affordable to live to live that way and i also think that a really big thing is that people can take away listening is the environment that they're in right so in my house, I only have these foods. And I'm in Costa Rica right now where if I wanted to get a candy bar or a chocolate bar right. or something, I would need to go far, you know? If I was in New York, yes. I need to walk to the corner and I can buy just any glazed donut or chocolate or a bag of chips, whatever I wanted. So I think the environment that we're in, where we choose to live or where we do live and our homes, so the environments that we're creating are definitely having a big it's a big indicator of our ability to stay stay on track and eat the way we want we want we really Absolutely. want to eat. And this is why the problem is there's so many health disparities at play here because privileged people have the privilege to eat a healthy diet. But there, you know, you were you were going back to, you know, this isn't all doom and gloom and there's both the ability of individuals to push back against the food environment and to and also to work politically to support evidence-based changes that remodel our food environment. And then there's the industry itself. And there's some pretty interesting developments going on there. I recently interviewed a food entrepreneur down in LA who has figured out, you know, those uh, sweet green? Yes. It's like a oh. $14. I love it, right? I'm, I'm like- 14. I I'm, I, I used to live around the corner from Sweet Green and go twice a day. So yeah, yo, you're a twice a day. I have loyalty there. I can. I have a card that I can bring ten people now to Sweet Green to get free salads. But COVID happens. Oh, so I'm like, I'm yeah, I'm one of those. You're a power user. Yes. Um, yeah, because you know, I've even talked to the people there, and they and I say, God, this thing is expensive. And they say there are people who come twice a day, <laughs> and and fourteen dollars is just a starter salad. If you want like double fish or like extra sides, you know. But this guy, he figured out. He's a food entrepreneur, and he figured out a way to, you know, it's the whole business model of having like a central kitchen, and then you have these shops that it's all like sent out to. And he explained it all to me and broke it all down. But he's figured out a way to get a $4 sweet green bowl into parts of like Watts in LA and open up a storefront that sells these. And he, part of how he does it, he's cross-subsidizes it. So when you sell it in, in Westwood, it's $16. When you sell it in Watts, it's $4. And the idea is to compete with the McDonald's down the, the block. Wow. The problem I've also talked to a guy who figured out a way to take real fruit and infuse it into water in this way that hint? it's- Is it hint water or another, another uh, brand? There's that, and this is called Spindrift. Oh, Spindrift is my second, my second favorite. I go get my salad and the Spindrift. To at hear what that guy went through, the guy who founded that company, 
to figure out how to do that. It was really not a, it was a big deal. And these people are very committed. The challenge is Coke and Pepsi own the supermarket shelves. And so these industry disruptors literally can't get their product on the shelf. And so there's a piece of of what we can do, which is just to vote with our feet and to support these industry disruptors who are figuring out a way to make healthy food available to low-income communities. Yeah, and, and Spindrift is not more than soda, and you can buy it on Amazon. I'm, well, there I'm, you go. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't believe it's that. I mean, is it more than soda? I don't think it is. I think I it's know. like a, I mean, a I, can, I, of, a package of six. I've been meaning or, to buy it. My daughter tells me it's great. Get the you lemon know, not, one. The I'm lemon not, one is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying that this is the, is the be-all, end-all solution, but these, you know, Coke and Pepsi have been around for a very long time in controlling this market. And, you know, you still have issues with sustainability. Like the, and this is one of the things that I've been working on lately. You know, we're looking at water scarcity. Coke is running around Mexico right now in parts of Latin America, buying, trying to privatize water to secure its ability to have water wow. to make its product. And it's a huge concern. And so, you know, the more that I get into this stuff, the more I think about sustainability and how we have to think not just about human health, but planetary health, and especially with climate change. And these companies have to be, I asked the guy who founded Spindrift, like, but you say it's sustainable. And he's like, yeah, you know, I, I get the fruit from the Central Valley, and then I pack, make the beverage, and then I sell it locally. You know, he's trying as best he can. And I'm like, yeah, but it's still in cans and bottles. And he said, well, actually, I, I think I figured out a way to make it like in a fountain. So you can just like take your reusable bottle. And, you know, so it's that kind of thinking. And a lot of these folks are are thinking that way, but I do think it's really important. We don't just substitute, you know, Coke and Pepsi are always going to have those bottles and cans and the business model has to change in some pretty fundamental ways to be sustainable. So you're thinking like Spindrift um, fountains in every corner and that we will put out. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? I What about just good old fashioned water, you know? You know, good old fashioned um, water. I, 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 I do it all, I I do it all day like long. It. Yeah. <laughs> when you take too. it, when, when you strip away everything else, it becomes a lot easier to yeah. to, do, to drink water. And, you know, I, I, if you're listening and you think it's really challenging to, you know, you stop you know, drinking sweet drinks, sugar, soda, whatever. Uh, Dr. David Katz has this um, thing he he calls taste bud rehab, where you can actually oh, re- rehab your taste buds. It's actually it actually works because I haven't gone through taste bud rehab, but I don't crave sweet. I don't. I never crave soda anymore, and I I drink water, drink seltzer, lots of lemon juice. But yeah, and I think it's um it's it, you feel better, you feel clearer, and it's not a it's not a zero sum game. Like if you have you know, if you're drinking, you know, 10 cans of soda, even if you take, if you start, bring it down to five or two, whatever, it's, you know, yeah, slowly wean exactly. yourself off it, start to drink more water, it'll, it will just get a lot easier. And just cutting out sweet drinks is like half the battle, you know? And I talked to this researcher at uh, UC Davis, and she literally studies taste buds and the neurotransmitters that connect to taste buds. And she studies sugar. And what she says, you know, sugar it gets on your tongue and boom, it's like the front of the tongue, right? It's the first or the back of the tongue. And it's the first thing, you know, it just like, boom, it's hitting your nervous system and it's this reward thing. And there are biological evolutionary reasons for that. But the palate is incredibly uh, modifiable, she says. And the sugar sweetness taste is something that you can actually 
modify. And at least from a palatability standpoint, I mean, if you've ever, like a lot of people have tried to get off salt. And if you ever try to lower your salt, you go back to like a potato chip and it's Mm. like, oh my God, all I can taste is salt. And it's the same with sugar. And so what you're describing is exactly right. You just wean yourself off of it, blend soda with half and half soda water, put, then you get the fruit into the water and, and staying away from the diet drinks because that's going to keep that palatability factor, that sugar. And, you know, you talk to anybody who comes to America and they, they you know, they just go, oh my God, everything here is so sweet, you yeah. know, and they have to get used to it. So we can undo that. I'm with you there. And I think that's a great way to wrap up this interview. I want to wrap up with one, one question for you. I like to ask all the guests. So the podcast is called Feeling Full. And so my question for you is, what is one area in your life where you are feeling full in right now? Oh, that's a great question. My house. It's spring here and I have a beautiful garden and I grow veggies and I also grow, you know, flowers and it's just beautiful here in the Bay Area right now. Early spring is my favorite time of year. Mm. And it's kind of odd. After a year of lockdown, I've sort of kind of grown to like the place. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, like a lot of people have done a lot of improve. You know, I bought a new couch and, you know, I made it a nicer place. And so, you know, like like everybody, I'm kind of looking at emerging from the pandemic and wanting to keep the good stuff. And I think the house is a really fulfilling thing to keep. I love that. Yeah. I keep the house. (laughs) <laughs> Laura, thank you so much for joining. Yeah, this has been um, really, really educational for me. And uh, I'm, I'm, it's, it's been a great um, learning about what you're doing on the front lines, you and the team. And, um, and if you, what, what, if, is there anything else you want to leave people with? I know your, your website, sugar, um, remind oh, the name. Sugarscience.org. Sugar, sugarscience.org well, about all the research that I'll you guys are to, doing. Yeah. And, and we're on Twitter and Facebook as well. Sugar Science Now. And it's a way for people to, we launched the project because so much of the research on sugar is industry funded and biased. And we wanted to have, we have a team of 12 scientists who culled through the literature uh, who have no industry funding ties and try to look at the science and figure out, okay, what's the neutral story here? What do we know? What is true? So it's a real, it's a scientific transparency um, project. And we try to be very careful about only sharing stuff that we know to be evidence-based. Hell yeah. The more transparent, the better we are, for sure. And people can find you online? At Sugar Science Now. Sugar, Sugar Science Now. Perfect. That's another story about why I had to get off Twitter. <laughs> for another time. <laughs> thank, you, thank, you, thank you so much, Laura. Okay. Thank you. That's it for us today, friends. Thanks for listening. Do you know someone who's struggling right now? If they could use some support, please share this episode with them. If you want to keep in touch, subscribe wherever you get your podcast or sign up to my weekly emails at feelingfull.com, where I unpack what I'm learning about weight loss and share ways we can all live healthier, more fulfilling lives. Take care, be well, and feel full.